there's studies out there that show that um, teachers are usually the number one person that students will go to to report any type of trauma or abuse or neglect, any type of situation um, like that. They usually go to their teacher first. So teachers are kind of out there on the front lines dealing with this with limited support and limited resources, like you said, and expected to just show up every day and deal with it. Welcome to Through the Eyes of Trauma, an inner ear agency production, where we engage in discussions regarding the impact that childhood trauma has on education, life, and living. This podcast seeks to help listeners realize the widespread impact of trauma, recognize how it is impacting the students, adults, and families, respond in a way that facilitates healing, and to actively resist re-traumatization. Join us as we tackle the hard conversations, but give tools and strategies to help you cope and begin your journey towards regulation by healing first and educating always. To receive professional development, consulting, and childhood trauma intervention services, please visit us at innerearagency.com. That's I-N-N-E-R-E-A-R-A-G-E-N-C-Y.com. Let's get into the conversation. Hello, and welcome to another enlightening episode of Through the Eyes of Trauma. I'm your host, Dr. Smith, and in today's episode, we'll delve into a critical topic that affects countless educators, secondary traumatic stress. We're honored to have an expert in this field. Psychologist Dr. Carol Brown is our special guest. But before we dive in, let's set the stage with some key insights. Today, our essential question is how can educators effectively address and cope with secondary traumatic stress while supporting students exposed to trauma and toxic stress? So before we do that, I want to welcome Dr. Carol Brown. Welcome, Dr. Brown. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. And as we start, can you tell us a bit about your journey and what led you to specializing in addressing secondary traumatic stress for educators? Sure. So um, I'm a licensed psychologist. I've been practicing for about 10 years now. Mm -hmm. And um, when I started my journey, um, back when I started my internship training, I started working in a residential treatment facility and a crisis care shelter um, in California. So I saw, um, I worked with many cases um, of kids and teens who were exposed to trauma and then also working with their parents who were also exposed to that trauma. Um, And so from that point, I just developed a passion for working with uh, people who have experienced traumatic events and helping them work towards that healing um, from everything that can, from all of the negative effects that trauma can, can bring on. Absolutely. And for our listeners, secondary traumatic stress or STS is a condition experienced by those who are exposed to the trauma or the traumatic experiences of others. Um, Educators working with students who have faced trauma are particularly vulnerable. And I wanted to uh, read an article that I found. Um, It's an excerpt from an ASCD article entitled The Impact of Secondary Trauma on Educators by Karen Baker. 
And it states, a fourth grade teacher named Sarah from New Orleans recently spoke about the trauma her students and families are facing and the ways it frequently spills into her classroom. This year already, I've had a student whose parent was killed and others whose parents are in, in and out of jail. I've had to confiscate weapons and some of my kids are homeless. She does her best to help her students, including greeting them at the door with hugs and helping them get counseling. But at the end of the day, as she tries to fall asleep, she finds herself worrying about the difficulties her kids may be facing at that very moment. And so that resonated me with me because, you know, today over half of our children in the United States suffer from some kind of trauma. And whether the trauma stems from the student's home life or, you know, results of community violence or things going on, we as educators, we recognize that helping these children cope with outside challenges is part of what we do to help them learn. And so I think we take it upon ourselves and then we become bogged down with all of their trauma. And when she said that at night she can't sleep because she's wondering what's going to happen to her, what's happening to her students, that resonated with me so much because I had a student at one point who I found out not intentionally, but the student told me that they were at home at night because their mom worked overnight. And at this time, the student was nine. And she said, you know, I just lock myself in my room and I have a refrigerator in there. And so if I need anything, I just eat from there. But I said, well, what happens if the apartment catches on fire? Like, what will you do? She was like, well, we didn't talk about it. And so I'm like, that's not something that your mom has talked to you about. How do you get out of the house? Where do you go? You know, and and she said, well, I would go to a neighbor but I haven't really talked to my mom about that. And that would bother me. Like in the middle of the, if I woke up at two o'clock in the morning and it was raining and, you know, it was thundering and lightning, I'm like, what is she doing right now? I wonder if she's afraid right now. Um, is she hiding under the bed? Like, I just didn't know. And so I wasn't able to sleep because of that. And I had to have a conversation with her mom and say, you've got to do something else. Because not only is this, you know, stressing her out, but it's stressing me out knowing that she's not at home, right. you know, no one's at home with her. And so- how would you define secondary traumatic stress for our listeners? And why is it particularly relevant to educators working with traumatized children? Yeah, so secondary traumatic stress, um, it can also be known as uh, compassion fatigue as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really refers to the emotional, psychological, and physical distress experienced by people who are exposed to the traumatic experiences of others. Mm-hmm. So you don't necessarily have to experience the trauma yourself, but if you witness it or if you've exposed to it through someone else who's experienced the trauma, you can also develop symptoms of PTSD or, um, you know, showing signs that you're, that you're dealing with this, tra- managing this trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, for teachers, um, it can be very prevalent in teachers because we see this happen more Um, and people who have roles of helping others. So we see this a lot with Mm -hmm. counselors, with healthcare providers, with first responders, um, and naturally educators and teachers can fall into that category because if you're in a space where you're helping others um, most of the time, chances are there's something that's going to come up eventually where you're dealing with someone who's gone through a tough time or a traumatic event, and you're going to Mm -hmm. be exposed to that through their experience. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of times we talk to people who are going through things, you know, who have experiences of trauma and of toxic stress. And we always tell them, you need to talk to somebody, you know, talk to somebody, get it off your chest, get it out of your mind and, and off of your body or, or those types of things. But in doing that, are we creating, you know, an area of 
where people are now becoming um, victim, if you will, to secondary or compassion fatigue because they're the ones that are listening to to the people who we're telling you've got to tell somebody you've got to talk to somebody and and get those things um out of your mind right so it can definitely kind of start that cycle going Mm -hmm. right I, i do think that it is important to talk with someone if you have experienced trauma but then it's equally as important as the people who are listening to this trauma to receive help for themselves so that way even though that cycle might continue, the listener, the helper is is getting help as well. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Let's get into the data. So several studies have shown that between 40 and 85% of helping professionals, such as educators, have developed vicarious trauma or compassion fatigue, and then they have high rates of traumatic symptoms. The prevalence may vary based on factors such as the demographics of the student population or the the one who's um, exposed to the trauma, the level of trauma exposure in the educational setting and recognizing this prevalence is crucial for raising awareness about the issue and promoting interventions to support effective educators. And so, Dr. Carol Brown, what are common signs and symptoms of secondary traumatic stress or compassion fatigue and how can educators recognize them in themselves? Right. So um, I think there's different categories of symptoms. So we have your emotional signs and symptoms you might notice. So this would look like um, experiencing a lot of anxiety, um, Mm -hmm. feelings of helplessness or hopelessness, um, noticing more irritability or mood swings, um, finding yourself um, more emotionally sensitive, Mm -hmm. um, finding uh, or experiencing moments of sadness and depression, sometimes even emotional numbness or disconnection, like feeling Mm -hmm. like disconnected from everything around you. Um, or at times even feeling feelings of guilt or shame whenever you feel like you can't help that student. Sometimes you might mm-hmm. feel some feelings of guilt there. Um, so there's emotional signs, but there's also physical signs that can come along with trauma. So that might look like um, trouble sleeping, headaches, um, GI issues, chronic fatigue, just feeling tired and exhausted all the time, or even feeling muscle aches and pains in your body. Then there's also cognitive signs and symptoms, um, trouble concentrating, making decisions, trouble with your memory. Even though you didn't experience the trauma, some people may Mm -hmm. have flashbacks of other people's trauma. So if a student has described their traumatic situation to you, and then Mm -hmm. you have kind of conjured that image up in your mind, you might continue to have those flashbacks of the image that you have in your mind of what they've gone through. I totally get that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, when when my students would tell me things that would happen to them either on the weekends or in their apartment complexes or when they went to visit people, I would automatically think, OK, I can't let my child do this. I can't let my child do that, you know, or my nieces and nephews. And I would tell my sister, don't let them do this because this can happen because I had a student that this happened to. And, and I started to become overwhelmed with feelings of thinking, OK, because this happened to my students, it's going to happen to my my nieces and my nephews and those intrusive negative thoughts and images related to my students' traumatic stress were now becoming my stress. What do we do when that happens? Because I've had that increased anxiety because of knowing about my students' stress, those feelings of numbness and detachment or, you know, diminishing concentration like you talked about and really just feelings of professional inadequacy. I didn't think that I was equipped 
to handle what my students were going through. And a lot of times I would tell the parents, I would tell the student, you know, we, we've got to call the counselor in and let's get you some help. But they didn't want to talk to anybody but me. And I know it's because we we built that um, that bond and that connection, and I was that buffering, nurturing relationship that they needed. But I didn't feel like I was I was equipped, you know, to handle it. One time, I had a student who kept saying that she saw the devil, and she kept saying, "I keep seeing the devil. He's telling me to do these things." And listen, I was a teacher. I was like, "What?" You know, like, is he in here right now? Like, I didn't know what to do. And the counselor would be like, oh, just call the mom and tell her, you know, we have resources for her. Well, that didn't help because the student didn't want to go talk to anybody. And then they would act like, you know, no, no, I'm fine. But with me, they would actually be really terrified and say, like, they're telling me to do these harmful things. And so that's when I said, okay, we need to call like a psychologist, a psychiatrist. And at the time, we didn't have them in the school setting, right? Because we don't have those those mental health supports that we need in school systems. And we had to call, a, you know, a mental hospital and these types of things. But I was like, why is this at my doorstep? Because I don't know what to do, you know? And so right. how do we, or what coping strategies or self-care practices do you recommend for educators to manage their secondary traumatic stress if they're in a situation like that? Right. And, and what you just described you know, describe that feeling of helplessness and hopelessness mm-hmm. that, that you had, that you couldn't, that, that you felt like there's so much you can do for this mm-hmm. student to help them through this. I think, you know, employing various coping strategies and self-care practices can definitely help teachers navigate through that secondary traumatic stress and help them maintain their well-being. Um, I think the first thing to do is increase their self-awareness. So really learning how to recognize the signs of secondary traumatic stress, noticing when they are feeling these feelings and noticing how to acknowledge their own emotional responses. Um, that helps you take the first step into learning how to manage them. So increasing mm-hmm. your self-awareness. Um, secondly, like establishing boundaries. Um, this can be hard because it, if yes. anyone who's in the helping field, um, we like to help people. And so setting clear boundaries can be difficult setting boundaries between your work life and your personal life, right? So trying to figure out ways to avoid bringing work-related stress and trauma home with you, trying to create a physical and emotional separation between your professional and personal spaces, if possible. Mm -hmm. You know, finding supportive social connections. Um, It's important to stay connected with friends, with family, even with colleagues, Um, maybe even creating or finding a professional support group with other educators who also Mm -hmm deal with secondary trauma on a regular basis. So that way you feel like you're not alone in this and that you have someone who is understanding and can relate to how you're feeling, um, can sometimes just help motivate you to to get through those times. Um, And then establishing healthy habits, like getting enough sleep, uh, make sure you're maintaining a healthy diet. We kind of underestimate how important healthy habits are to our Mm -hmm. overall well-being and mental functioning. I I totally agree. Um, Awareness and recognition for me was key because, you know, well, for many reasons. First of all, it allowed me to identify the signs and symptoms in myself and then take the first steps towards seeking help and and implementing those coping strategies that you talked about. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, just reducing the stigma of the, you know what I'm saying, just of encouraging 
my students or reducing the stigma of talking about it as a trauma or as toxic stress and putting a name to it to let them know, like, you're not alone. This is something that you're experiencing. But then when I get home, understanding that, you know, I'm feeling this way because of what I talked with my student about today. And my husband used to say all the time, why do you keep bringing your your work home with you or trying to bring your work home with you? Because I would be like, you know, oh, he just needs a good parent. Like we could just be their parent, especially because we were in working in an area where there was an orphanage or, you know, a a foster home and that type of thing. And so Mm -hmm. when the students would come and tell me their stories, I would be like, babe, we could just adopt them. And like, we could have these kids. And he was like, why do you keep trying to bring your work home with you? Like literally bringing your work home with you. But it's that, that compassion that we have, like, I know I can provide a better life for them than the life that they're experiencing, Mm -hmm. but not even realizing at the time that even if I took them out of that situation that they were in, that doesn't mean that they're automatically going to come here healed and whole. Right. Right. And that the experience would just live in here. Like I wouldn't have to still even more so take on that secondary stress or that compassion fatigue because now they're in my home 24 seven. And so I'm dealing with the behaviors right from their experiences and I'm dealing with just the fallout of what they may have experienced even in utero you know and mm-hmm. before they even were, were born and then when they came into this world because I heard one time uh, that children record things that are happening to, to them from birth to six years old and then from six on, they're acting out or their behavior is a direct reflection of what their mind and their bodies recorded. And we know that in trauma and toxic stress, the body keeps the score. So imagine the things that people are walking around here doing as far as their behavior and the risks that they're taking simply because they recorded all of these negative um negative experiences and all these traumatic experiences in childhood that are still unhealed. And so that's why I'm so passionate about making sure that even adults, you know, even adults who are suffering from unresolved childhood trauma, that they find ways to cope, that they become aware and they recognize the signs of trauma and toxic stress in their body. And then also the people who are in that helping field to help them do the same. And so that's why I'm so appreciative that you're here, that you're in this field, you know, and that this is also a passion of yours because if we don't help the others and ourselves, then this world's going to be full of people walking around with behaviors simply because of exposure to trauma. And right. toxic stress. Yeah. And I think once we notice that we ha- are experiencing signs of secondary trauma, um, another way to cope is to really make sure that we are taking a step back when we need to. So Mm -hmm. noticing when, okay, I'm overwhelmed. This is too much. I need a break Mm -hmm. and not feeling guilty for taking those breaks. That's so Mm -hmm. true. When I had a student one time who was telling me, I know they weren't trying to lay it all at my feet, but that day it was just really heavy in there. And, but, but I get it. They had been, it was a Monday, you know, they had been dealing with this all weekend. And so I guess, Monday was the time they were like, oh, I'm going to go to school and I'm going to get this all off my chest. And I was just so heavy to where I had to, you know, call my co-teacher. And I was like, look, I got them working on something. You know, can you just keep an ear off of them? I need to go into the teacher's lounge and kind of woosah because I wanted to cry. I wanted to cry. And I was like, I cannot be crying in front of these children like this. But I needed that time to step away and kind of woosah and be like, 
Okay, Selena, you recognize that, first of all, you can't do everything. You can't be everything to everybody. And if you go in here all empty like this, then how are you going to teach them? How are they going to learn for the day? How are they going to meet the standards and how are they going to meet the, the outcomes of today? You need to take a break. And then they, we started incorporating, you know, mental health days. And when I say incorporate, I don't mean the school system. I mean, I told myself, you're going to take a mental health day. Yeah, because sometimes you have to do that yourself. Yeah. Absolutely, because they're not going to do it for you. And I get that, mm -hmm. you know, the kids need to be taught and we have standards to meet and we have goals to meet and student outcomes to make. But we're not going to be able to teach them if we haven't first healed ourselves. And that's why I love to say, you know, heal first, educate always, because if you're not healed, how are you going to point to these students? And if they're not healed, how are they going to learn? That self-compassion, I think, is really important to help us learn to be kind to ourselves and take care of ourselves. So that way we can take care of others, as you mentioned. I, I, I truly um, believe that. And I wish we had more people, you know, with your mindset to go into the schools and to let um, just not even teachers, but the administrators know how important this is and how important this work is to getting to the student outcomes, because now that's what's most important to them. You know, making sure that students are are being taught and that they learn and making sure that the teachers are in the classrooms and giving showing up as their best selves. That's important to administrators and, and to, you know, to school board members for teachers to show up as their best selves every day for students. But when are we taking the time to put things in place to make sure that teachers are able to show up as their best selves? Right. If teachers don't have those resources to be able to help them show up as their best selves, it's going to lead to burnout. And then you're going to see what we're seeing now. So many educators wanting to leave the field. Absolutely. I totally agree because I just think that we're 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 trying to fix the problem of you know, lack of um, academic success. But I think that is not the key to fixing that problem. I don't think going straight into the academics is how we fix the problem. I think going into the minds and the hearts of the children, going into the minds and the hearts of the teachers to where they're in a space where they can teach, you know, rigorously, where they're able to meet, make connections and meet students where they are to, to bring out the outcomes and where students are sitting in a classroom in their thinking brain because they're in a safe space with adults who care about them and who care about their their healing but also their learning and so if they're sitting in a space where it's their safe space where they can sit in a thinking brain and they're not in survival brain then that's when the outcomes will will happen right that's when students right. will begin to experience their own level of success because they're in a space where i can sit here and i can focus and i can you know i can analyze that i can read text you know, and understand what's going on. I can comprehend text. I can make do math computations. All of these things that you need a functioning brain that's not sitting in traumatic stress, you know, to do. Right. If we had that, then think about where we could be academically. Exactly. But we just focus on the end game, the end goal. We don't focus on the things, the steps that we need to do to get to the end goal. And that is what is so disheartening to me because I really believe that educators play a crucial role in the healing journey of students, especially those with high doses of trauma and toxic stress. Definitely. I mean, there are studies out there that show that um, teachers are 
usually the number one person that students will go to to report any type of trauma or abuse or neglect, any type of situation um, like that. They usually go to their teacher first. So teachers are kind of out there on the front lines dealing with this with limited support and limited resources, like you said, and expected to just show up every day and deal with it. Every day. Mm -hmm. Even when we have our own issues in our own lives, right? We have our own stresses and our own traumas and we're still expected, like you said, to just show up every day. And I went to um, a conference that Momentous Institute did last week and I was able to meet Dr. Nadine Barcaris and she was there. And when she said that educators deliver the daily doses that truly are the antidote to healing children with toxic stress, I start to shout. I was like, Mm -hmm. we are the antidote. And people fail to realize that educators are the antidote because even though, you know, students have access to their parents, a lot of times they won't go talk to their parents about what they're experiencing. Why? Because, and I hate to say this, but the the trauma and the toxic stress that these children are feeling came from somewhere. And so a lot of times the parents either, and I hate to say this, but allowed it to happen to them or don't even realize that the way that they're living is is making the children experience trauma and toxic stress, or even if it's something that has been passed down. So intergenerational trauma and intergenerational mm-hmm. toxic stress, they don't realize that that's a problem because that's what we, my grandmama did. That's what, you know, my great grandmother went through and all of these things, but it's, it becomes a cycle. And that cycle of intergenerational trauma that's passed down from from grandma to to mother to child and now is in the school system and is becoming secondary traumatic stress for teachers is going to continue unless we break the cycle. Right. And that is really sad. But you're you're correct. I think some students will go to their teachers because they feel like maybe family and friends have normalized this trauma. Um, They've normalized it. Or um, they might feel like they're not going to be believed or no one's going to understand. So what would you tell an educator who's dealing with this with a student, but the student doesn't want to talk to the parent or the parent is not receptive to them saying, hey, I really think that, you know, your child should talk to someone or your family should talk to someone. What would you tell them to do? So I would encourage them to maybe offer to sit down and have that conversation with them and their parents together. Because the student Mm -hmm. came to you as um, someone who they trust. So they may feel more comfortable discussing this with their parent or their caregiver with you being present. So that way they can feel that the space is still safe if you're there and you're in the room versus kind of sending them home to speak with their parent on their own. Mm -hmm. They're not sure how that might play out. Um, or feeling like they're being told on if you then go call the parent and let them know what they just told you. I think maybe having it be a conjoint conversation, maybe something they could feel more comfortable with. Now, how can educators build a strong support network, um, both personally and then within their educational community? Mm-hmm. So I think so personally, um, it's really kind of looking into the support you have with your friends, your family, mm-hmm. um, and realizing that you have a life outside of your work, you know, and spending time mm-hmm. with your family, spending time with your friends, um, not talking about work, you know, and mm-hmm. building up those relationships as well. 
Um, so your only relationships aren't focused on work or with your students. And then professionally, um, I think it's great when educators can come together um, and maybe plan times, let's say once a week or, or once a month, if schedules don't allow that, to come together and just talk about shared experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, and Absolutely. sometimes just bouncing that off of each other can help you feel more supported, more heard, and then more energized and motivated to continue the work that you're doing because you know that you're not doing this alone. Mm-hmm. I had, um, I still have, um, we, we were called, we called each other family. So we were our coworkers. So teachers from every different grade level, the coach at the school, and we would have what we called a uh, coffee break. And so we knew, okay, I need a coffee break this week, guys. Like where are we going after school, you know, to just rela- relax, relate and release really. And even during the day, it, it was such a blessing because we weren't necessarily on the same teams. So we would have our downtime at different times. And so when I see them come to my classroom or they know when I came to their classroom, sometimes I just need to sit at the back of your classroom and just you know, relax and just woosah. They knew, okay, something's going on. So they'd come, you know, teach, come by, you good? I'm like, I'm good. I just need a break, you know? And to be able to have that in the same setting because they understood what we were going through. Because a lot of times either they had the student that I'm dealing with now, or they have, you know, are going to have the student or they've interacted with them in such a way, in some type of way that they understood what I was going through and I understood what they were going through and we were able to kind of bear each other's burdens. And I didn't understand the people who would come to work and just leave and didn't really connect with anybody or talk to anybody. I didn't understand how they could do that. And a lot of times they didn't last because our campus was was a tough campus to work at because our students had been exposed to so much. And so you had to have like a deeper level of compassion, but you also had to have a support system. And without our support system, we would not have been able to get through those years. But the people who were connected, who stayed there and who had a connection with other teachers and other um, administrators on the campus were the ones who we called lifers, who had been there for years and years because we had that support system and not even just at the campus, but we would do life together. We still do life together. We still take trips together and those things, even though we're not all still working at that one Mm -hmm. campus, but we were able to do life together. And I think that's strictly because uh, for lack of a better term, we went through hell and back together Mm -hmm. because we were each other's support system when dealing with in this, this difficult work of trying to educate, but also heal these children who have been exposed to trauma and toxic stress. So I totally understand when you say get you a support system, because that is what will make or break not only you, but your career and your whether or not you experience this burnout that a lot of teachers are experiencing. It's because they're not taking the time um, to find that support system, like you said. And it's so crucial to me to not just be on the island by yourself, especially in um, in a school setting. Yeah, I think it's so important that, that you said that and that you were able to create that system, that support system for yourself. Um, and in the field of mental health, um, we do something similar as therapists. You know, I have a group of, of colleagues and former colleagues who've also turned into friends and we will get together once a month and just kind of vent the the, the stressors of being a therapist mm-hmm. and just kind of be there for each other and provide support and laugh and sometimes cry and just, mm-hmm. you know, be able to really have those shared experiences to know that, okay, we, to help remind us as to why we're doing this in the first place and to motivate mm-hmm. us to continue in this journey. And, and how is that for you? Because 
I mean, as teachers and as educators, I know there's, there's a lot of secondary compassion fatigue there, but this is what you do all day. Like, this is your life. This is your work. Mm-hmm. How do you separate that from now being at, at, you know, being at home and taking all of those things home with you? Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely took some practice <laughs> getting used to that, especially working with trauma. Um, most of my work is with trauma. Um, but really, when I leave work for the day, um, I really shut everything off. I try not to bring, when possible, I try not to bring any work home as far as I don't bring any notes, um, any type of administrative work that I need to do for my my practice, I leave all of that for the next day. And whenever I'm, I walk through the doors of my home, I have really made it a goal to not um, engage with anything work-related. And so when I walk home, I am now wife and mommy. I'm no longer psychologist and therapist I love um, it. until I leave the, the house the next day. And so it's really taken some practice for me to be able to turn that off like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's really what I've needed to do to kind of protect myself. So that way um, I don't burn out and I can continue to help people in the way that I enjoy doing. I love that. Dr. Carol Brown, thank you so much for sharing your expertise on addressing secondary traumatic stress for educators, because this is this is crucial work. Right. And it's crucial for us to recognize and cope with this issue as it ultimately impacts the well-being and academic growth of our students. But can you before we leave, can you tell um, our listeners where they can find you? Yes. So um, you can go to my website at Guiding Hope Therapy llc.com and you can find access to uh, my contact information there my email address my phone number Um, I provide individual therapy sessions uh, for teens and young adults and you can even book a free consultation with me on my website and with that I will leave you with the through the eyes of trauma takeaways number one prioritize self-care remember that self-care is not a luxury it's a necessity Educators must regularly engage in self-care practices to prevent and address secondary traumatic stress effectively. Number two, seek professional support like Dr. Ashley Carol Brown. Do not hesitate to seek professional assistance if you're struggling with secondary traumatic stress. Therapists and counselors can offer specialized guidance. Number three, build a support network. Create a strong support network within your educational community and among friends and family. Sharing your experiences can lighten your emotional load and promote healing. And number four, heal first, educate always. Unless you take care of yourself and seek healing for you and your students, you will not be able to effectively educate to see the student outcomes that you work so hard for. Thank you again so much, Dr. Ashley Carol Brown, for sharing your valuable insights. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week.